Welcome back to the Dealership Fix-It Podcast. I'm Brian Croft. You are listening to episode number 54. We are in the the new decade. Uh, we're in 2020. Um, today, I've got a guest coming to you. We're going to discuss some stuff to do with service, service writing. Uh, how can you be better in your service department? How important is service? Well, you know the answer to that. Let me introduce you. It's Kurt Von Annen is on with me today. He's in a uh, many-year... Um, industry veteran. He's also the author of a couple of books you're going to want to check out, and we'll talk about those. Um, Kurt, welcome to the Dealership Fix-It Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time tonight to jump on. Oh, thanks, Brian, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to reach out to your audience, man. I think this will be fun. Well, you're you're right up the alley of, uh, of you know, if I were to sit back when I first started doing this a year ago and imagine who the heck would I have on a podcast if I did one? Why would I do one? You know, all that. And and honestly, because the very first job I ever did at a dealership was at a Yamaha dealership in Louisville, Texas. And the first job they gave me was service writer. And I had no idea what that looked like. Um, you're the kind of guy I would have on this. Um, so I'm glad we finally got John right in episode or season two. Nice, nice. And, and what you just described is part of what, you know, inspires the passion that I have to, to talk about fixed operations because for some reason at the dealer level, everyone thinks it's okay to put someone that doesn't know what they're doing on the service desk. And that's the absolute worst decision a dealer can make. It's worse than sabotaging their sales department. Mm -hmm. Well, I can see that. And, and having read through your book, um, which is a really, to be honest with you, it's a very easy read and I'm not, you know, a smart guy necessarily. And not a big reader on finishing books that you pick up. I get partway through them and then I get distracted. But I did yours in uh, in a couple sit downs, so to speak. So within you know a day and a half of my extra time, I was through it, and I love it. I'm a big proponent. So tell me this. No, I'm glad I could keep you. I'm glad I could keep you company in the restroom, Brian. <laughs> tell me this. So uh, what's the right sort of? Uh, I mean, writing service, being in the service side of the business, isn't right for everybody. So somebody listening to no. this is most likely either in that position or they're considering that position. What, what should they be considering before they head down that path? You know, there's so many things to, to actually consider about the position, Brian, that, you know, we open a whole can of worms every time we start to think about it. It's, you know, it, you can't hate people, right? You, you have to be good with people. Um, you got to be somewhat mechanically savvy, but you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be a master technician to be a service writer. In fact, I find some of the best service writers are the ones that actually don't know how to work on the bikes. Um, you know, you need to have a lot of patience and you need to be a really good communicator and really good at understanding priorities. And, you know, when, when I give these trainings, when I do fixed operations training, you know, whether it was for Ducati North America or for Suzuki or, or, you know, for independent consulting, uh, you know, I make three promises to, to people, you know, and I tell these service writers, you know, by the end of this training, I'm going to show you how to manage your department instead of your department managing you. And that's, that's kind of a big thing there. You, you have to, you have to be able to take the bull by the horns and recognize that you're the hub of the dealership. Everything hinges upon what you do, you know, in that position at that counter, you're in charge of what the technicians get. You're in charge of what bikes get done for sales. You're in charge of, 
you know, parts flow through the parts department. You're the number one customer of the parts department. So, you know, and you're the face of the dealership to the public, you know, after the sale, the, the salesperson sells the bike, but then you have to sell the dealership for a lifetime after that. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, when I, when I communicate this to, to a room full of service writers, service managers, and, and dealer owners, you know, I try to really relay the importance of the position down and get people to understand what they said yes to, because it's a big responsibility. One of the, uh, I was just looking through, I got the book in front of me right now. One of the things I, I flipped through to see like some of the stuff that I had used a highlighter and marked up. And the one, the first thing I opened up to is on page 17. It says, as the service writer, you are the ringmaster. Yeah, because so, it's a circus. <laughs> <laughs> totally get it. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, to me, it's, it's an important position. Doesn't mean it's easy. It's a difficult spot. You know, you had come um, through from automotive to power sports. I feel like probably the assumption is that automotive is much more uh, kind of figured out, you know, that, that, that whether it's the level of professionalism, you know, name that thing. Uh, but I think the assumption I would make is I'd never worked in automotive service, but I've brought my vehicle to automotive service. And then I've had worked in power sports service, um, that's kind of, it looks like, you know, based on where you've been, um, and automotive side, what's your take on, you know, that I imagine a lot of your takeaways are because you came from there and now you're on the power sports side. Yeah. So the, the two animals are completely different. So, and, and a lot of it comes down to, believe it or not, just parts sourcing, right? If, if I'm managing the desk at a Ford dealership and we sell brakes on an F-150, uh, you know, we order parts, you know, we order brakes and rotors through the parts department and they go, oh, bummer, we don't have none, bro. Um, it's no big deal. In an hour, you've got brake pads and rotors because you've got CarQuest, Parts Plus, three other Ford dealers and a drive, you know, and you've got a parts runner that hops in a truck and goes and gets your stuff for you. Like that parts department has staff funding and the ability to supply you with the parts you need when you need them very rare in the automotive world that you're actually on hold for parts. Whereas in the power sports industry, anything that your technician looks at that's beyond, you know, fall damage or uh, scheduled maintenance is, is probably going to end up in a parts order situation, at least if your parts people are managing the inventory correctly. So managing the desk in power sports takes that extra level of forethought, that extra level of, of thinking and communication with the customer to be able to say, First, we need to diagnose it, then order the parts, and then reschedule the repair. And I think where a lot of the dealerships actually get lost in the haze is they, they lose sight of that rescheduling the repair. And that's why bikes end up sitting in the back of the lot getting pushed in and out every day for three months. You know, And that's, that's part of the productivity and the efficiency that, that drives the profit of a dealership. And if, it, if the dealership can't make profit, it, it can't stay solvent, right? So that, that's a big push for me. Well, I didn't ask you to do it at the beginning, and, and maybe that's uh, short-sighted um, to run through. Would you mind running through kind of where you've, it doesn't have to be the whole thing, but some sort of highlight reel on uh, on where you've been um, and, where, and where you're at today and where you're headed? Sure, sure. Uh, I got into automotive service writing in my in my 20s. I mean, and before that, I had, oh my goodness, now i got to go way back. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia, and one of my first jobs as a young man was uh, working at Montgomeryville cycle center. And I came into the parts department and then through 
attrition and through being a workaholic and, and through, you know, using some critical thinking, I ended up being the guy that ordered stuff that checked inventory that ended up almost being like the director of the parts department at a really, really young age. Uh, Bobby Jones was like, you're the manager of this department. Now I was a screwball kid. And if Bobby is listening and Bobby remembers me from back then, he's going to say I was an idiot, which he's absolutely correct. Um, that was the absolute beginning of me being involved in the industry. Fast forward that, you know, I went into the car business. I was a service writer, service manager, service director. And everywhere that I went, there was an increase in customer satisfaction and a sharp increase in revenue. Um, and so then I kind of got known as this guy that would, you know, go into a shop that was hurting, that was in the red and then put it into the black. And then right up until about the point that either race season started or someone asked me to do something that breached my ethics, you know, I would stay or, or leave. So I'd always say, Hey, Daytona's in March. I got to leave to go to a race. And they would say, yeah, that's no problem. Cause they'd hire me in November and they'd say I have to go racing in March. Right. And then business would kind of fix itself over three months. And then I'd say, Hey, it's March. I'm going racing just like we discussed. And they'd be like, Oh, you can't leave now. There's too much going on. We got to keep you. And I said, well, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to Daytona. And if I come back and there's a job, great. And if I come back and there's not a job, that's fine too. And then I'd go to the next dealer and start that repair process. And through that and through that frustration, that's kind of where that book originally came from. It was, what is the matter with me? Why, why have I worked at 20 dealerships at my age? Why can't I succeed? Why am I so frustrated if everywhere I go, I see success, right? And that was like a, this dichotomy in my brain. So when I wrote the book, I didn't think anyone was going to buy it. It was, a, it was a mental exercise to just get it out of my head so I could sleep at night. And then sure enough, the thing started selling and it led to a career with Ducati. And then that took me to Suzuki. It sounds like you've been a, a consultant minded from way back then you, you show up to, to show up to, uh, to help and solve a problem. And ultimately that's what between, you know, any of us can really ever hope to do and not so much in a consultant role, but that's what we can hope to do is to find the problem that they're like in case of a customer has and, and help them solve it through our, through our products or services, you know, is, is usually what we show up to do. And it sounds like you've been doing that location after location for years now. And obviously it doesn't surprise me that you were able to do some of that on your own as well. Yeah. It's just unfortunate though, Brian, cause it takes, you know, humans are inherently stupid no matter how smart we sound when we speak sometimes. And you know, it took me decades to figure out that my sweet spot wasn't running the desk. My sweet spot was showing other people how to run the desk, mm -hmm. you know, but it took me decades to realize it. Yeah, I can see, you know, I get that, you know, even, even when you think you're competent in a certain uh, area, obviously you're incompetent and, and all the others potentially, you know, or someone's got that much level above you, but sometimes showing somebody, um, you know, teaching or coaching from that side of it is, is, you know, the sweet spot for an individual. What, um, let's yeah, see. And Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I look back now fondly, like there's not a thing I would change, you know, all the frustration and stuff because at the end of it, I've had the opportunity to test all of my different ideas, strategies, formulas, time and time and time again to see what works, what doesn't work, and, and to understand that each place is different. Um, when I would consult with power sports dealers, for instance, I would always bring up like the Home, the home Depot example. You know, um, you can go into any Home Depot in the country and find whatever you want because each Home Depot is set up the same way. They're, they're assembled in the order that you build a house. 
So foundation material at one end, gardening at the other, and then all the phases of house building in between. And afford quality care is the same way. You know, a GM service dealership, pretty much the same way. But a power sports dealership has no planogram. It has no map. Each one of those businesses is independent. And because of the franchise model that's been set up, like for multi-line dealers, there is no consistency from one place to the next. So that's why in power sports, a lot of these guys feel like cowboys, like they're just trying to figure things out for the first time. Even when they, even if they're experienced and successful at one place, if they don't have a well-rounded experience of multiple places, it's very difficult. I wonder if that's the, where I have a, a hard time explaining to somebody, um, you know, if, if, if I'm interacting with, with power sports dealerships, you know, ownership, and someone's of the assumption that, well, it's a, a Suzuki dealer, so it, you go to this, this other Suzuki dealer and they've got that in common, and, and I would kind of shake my head and say, not really. You know, it's, it's the fact that they interact with that brand exists, but all else is, um, you know, it's an individual running a business the way they choose outwardly and, and physically when you show up, like you're saying at the store, there might be certain aspects to do with, uh, you know, some branding that are the same, but ultimately, you know, it's not like any of these guys signed up to work at IBM and have, you know, the clock in clock out show up at the same place. That's, you know, it's a, it's a definitely a different program. And I, you know, is that a direction that these dealers in power sports should be moving? You know, I, what, I mean, should they move in that direction the way the automotive is? Well, in a lot of my training that I do, and, and I should be fair, you know, hopefully it's okay to give a shout out. Absolutely. Um, the folks at garage, the folks at garage composites do a really good job at this as well. Trying to get dealers to communicate in similar ways or in similar fashions or have similar processes. Um, at the end of the day, you want to mirror your dealership like a successful dealership um, treats customers. You want your customers to come in and have like a, a, a duplicable experience with other good dealers, right? So on one hand, you want your business to be unique. You want your business to stand out. You want your business to be, you know, individualized in, in the field. But on the other hand, you got to be careful not to alienate your customers and you need to follow some best practices. And so, you know, part of what I train or part of what I consult with dealers on is how do we establish those best practices and what are the processes that you need to have in place to make customers feel comfortable and then above and beyond that, what are the things that you could do to be exclusive or exceptional that makes your customers, you know, exceed expectations as far as their view of you. And that's, that's kind of how that training has to go. When we started off, we were talking about, you know, I jokingly, you know, tell you the story that I, I was flung into a, here's your counter and here's where you check the bikes in. This is where they meet you and here's how you do it in the system. Um, obviously the joke is that, you know, what a bad, what a bad choice that is as much as I'd like to say, Oh no, I was a great, great with customer service. And as it in my twenties or whatever, you know, how good is anybody in their twenties at that sort of thing? But, um, you know, you had said, yeah, that's the worst thing you do. Put somebody on training that position. I totally agree. What would we, I mean, what would you tell, uh, you know, a dealer listening to this, who's either got somebody in position, they're not sure is the right person in that position? Is it, you know, is it keep the person, get them trained? Or is it, you really need to put somebody in that position with these attributes and with this training? Well, you, you've asked a multi-level question and um, there's a couple of things I need to address with it. And, and it's, and I hope that it doesn't sound too crass, but 
from a dealer owner perspective, when I talk to dealer owners, one of the first things they say is, I'd love to get a good guy on the counter, but I just can't afford it. Right? Like I'd love to go, you know, I'd love to go hunt down the right service writer with the right talent, with the right this and the right drive and, and the right mentality and put them on the, but I just can't afford it. And I'm here to tell you all day long, that is a complete myth because the right person on the counter is going to drive your sales and your revenue to more than compensate for whatever that cost is. And it's going to increase your customer satisfaction and your perception outside the shop. So it's the best money you could spend. Now, beyond that, the next part of that question would be, if you can't find that right person, then you need to find the right attributes, right? So uh, Manana Namas, my company, is actually partnered with another source that helps with HR services. And part of what we do is we scientifically assign each position in your dealership, all of it, from sales all the way down to you know parts receiving. We assign each of those positions a certain um, profile. And then when people apply, we have them do a profile survey and then we match that and scientifically only draw the best applicants. And it's not saying that they have the best experience like with Suzuki or the best experience with Kawasaki or whatever, but what we're looking at is work styles, right? So you match the perfect work style to the, to the position scientifically, you only interview those people that qualify in that range. And then that at least helps you put the right person on the counter. They might not have the right background, but it's the right person. And once you have the right person, then the dealer has to make the investment to train that person correctly and onboard them correctly. And that's another phase of training. If you don't have the, the bandwidth to do that internally, then that's when you, you know, you hire someone like me or garage composites or one of these other providers, you know, to work with those people to get them to be the person you want them to be. And then you can imagine what the next argument is. I get from dealers on that one. And that is, if I go through the process and spend the money to hire the right person, right? Cause if there's a fee obviously to, to do all this scientific aggregation, right? So, but you get the right person on the counter that costs money. And then you bring in a trainer to train that person properly to deal with the different brands and the different eccentricities of warranty submissions and all that stuff. You train that person at the skill level. Well, now you have a highly trained, perfect individual for that desk. And dealers are always afraid that if they invest in somebody, that person's going to leave and go down the street for an extra dollar an hour. And that is where I go right back to the first statement. If you are afraid someone's leaving your dealership for a dollar an hour, you have a culture problem in your shop and you need to fix that. You know, and, and th that becomes another part of the consulting process, right? How do you, how do you limit turnover in your dealership? How do you make employees happy to be there? How do you make customers happy to do business with you? And that's all part of, you know, developing your business and, and learning from the lumps along the way. But if you're afraid to make the investment, you'll never advance the department. And if the department doesn't advance, the dealership doesn't advance. Well, isn't it one of the oldest sayings is, is uh, I, and I'm going to butcher it because you just reminded me of it, but I can't tell you what it exactly says, but it's something along the lines of if you don't invest in, what is it? If you invest in training your team and they leave, how's it go? I'm going to get it wrong. I already got it wrong. <laughs> something like if, if you're, you, thinking of the rich, you're thinking of the Richard Branson quote. Is it a Branson? If you, what, yeah. what is it? Oh, uh, what is it? Uh, train your people to be excellent and then uh, pay them enough to make them not want to leave or something. Well, that's, that's probably a better version of the one I, I even I was thinking of. 
Yeah, yeah you have to look up famous Branson quotes while we're while we're on the phone. You know, if you've got a computer next to you, you could you could sound really intelligent. But uh, for right now, we both sound kind of silly. Yeah, that's but yeah, right. it's the same. It's um, uh, same thing. You know, they have to invest in it, and they and they have to put the time in. And unfortunately, we are in a culture now where everybody wants immediate gratification. They want to pluck somebody out of you know the ether, drop them on the service desk, give them a sign on the light speed and think that magically they've got their service desk handled. And that's, that's just the furthest thing from the truth. These products are becoming more and more complicated. They're not getting simpler. Um, when I was the national trainer for Ducati and I was introducing cruise control and adjustable ABS and, and electronic suspensions and all this, these things, you know, people were, kids were getting, I say kids, they're grownups, right? But they were getting sent to MMI, you know, by counselors saying, well, there's not much else you can do. You might as well be a mechanic. And they were getting there and going, I don't under, I got to use a computer to fix a motorcycle. Like I don't understand this. And society has really kind of pitched this whole thing wrong at this point. By the time you're a master technician working on any modern power sports product, um, you could probably be a brain surgeon, right? But we insist on paying these guys $20 an hour and thinking that they're the bottom of the totem pole when mentally, you know, they're the top echelon of our sport. Yeah. So sorry, I went off on the tangent. No, it's, it's, I mean, this is the, you know, like I say, I've had plenty of inquiries about, you know, and you and I talked off the air here about it before about the sort of inquiries I've gotten for service, you know, like the service is a sticking point and you get somebody that runs a store, it's their store, their family store, whatever. And, and their questions have to do with, man, my biggest struggle isn't I can sell, I can, we can operate everything else, but that service area, you know, I just know we're not hitting it out of the park back there. What, you know, and, and as far as where do we go, where we're at, obviously that's for somebody like you to work with them directly on and delve into, but I do get that a lot. So any of this conversation, I think is really valuable for that audience. And like I say, I've had several within 2019 asking for more service. So um, yeah, there are two elements to the type of training or consulting that I really like to focus on. And, uh, you know, when you're a corporate trainer, when, when you work for an OEM manufacturer, um, it's always the same thing with training, right? They'll say, we need to teach dealers, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you'll go, great. I can do that in three weeks. And they'll say, no, 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 we don't have three weeks. You know, you need to put together a program you could deliver in a week. And so then you, you take, you know, half of your information and throw it in the trash and then you try and pick the highlights and you, and you work really hard to build a program that you could deliver in a five day period and you get it all done. And then they pull you aside and they go, Hey Kurt, um, we're not going to be able to pull dealers out of the shop for five days to go over this kind of information. Uh, the most we're going to be able to get is two days. So you only have two days to train this course. So now you go, well, great. You know, I've got five days of highlights here. You know, I've got 20 years worth of dealer experience. I want to pour into these people. How can I do that? And then you, so then you take the highlights of the highlights. And for me, I found that in a two day training course, I could break it into two days. One day would be the feel good day. That's communication styles, overcoming objections, dealing with customers. It's all the fluffy, you know, heart stuff. And then the second day, um, you kind of do a review of the communication side to make sure that you don't lose sight that communication is important but then that's the numbers day. And that's when you look at technician productivity, shop efficiency, you know, how to drive the numbers, how to dispatch the work more efficiently, the ins and outs of actually writing the service ticket and making sure that you meet the legal requirements to, to, to make a ticket, you know, real, like God forbid you had to go to court for something. And 
you know, I've done that course uh, for years with Ducati North America. Uh, I wrote a course at Suzuki for that. And, you know, at Ducati, we tracked it. The dealers that actively took the training, um, the ones that took training on average had a 47% increase in parts and labor sales, you know, and that's nationwide and up into Canada. And then one of the dealerships in Canada went one year and then the very next year came to training again and they, and it was a different guy. And he goes, he goes, well, I can't believe it. You know, this is the course that my coworker took and we're up $650,000 for the year, you know, parts and labor sales only. So we went and did a dealer visit and this particular shop didn't do, you know, one or two gold nuggets from training. They, they did everything. And it was so rewarding and so humbling for me as a trainer to go into a shop and see, okay, what happens if someone actually leverages your advice and does everything you say to do? And they were up $650,000, still had a fiscal quarter of the year to go. So they were projecting, you know, over a $1 million increase in parts and labor sales, you know, and that's from a single shop in Canada. So, and when you break that down for the OEM, you know, cause now people are probably wondering if they're listening, they're saying, well, why did Ducati pay for that training? It's the dealers making more money. What's in it for Ducati? Well, remember, if there's a 47% increase in parts and labor for the dealer and a good ticket is 50% parts, 50% labor, well, that's extra part sales for the OEM as well. And so that extra movement in parts is what kind of generates the income or the revenue that justifies the training that they give, right? Mm-hmm. So it all worked in this full circle. I'm imagining that dealer coming back to a second year and saying, I got to wonder with how much success we're having, why don't you do longer than a two day training? I'm sure we could get a lot more insights in more than two days. <laughs> and, well, that and would happen. I, that's what I'm, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, I wonder if does that, you know, does do, do you push all that back again? If we're talking, you know, that the OEMs are the ones in that case that are providing the training, um, you know, the expanded view of that or, or, or obviously like what you do now, if you're, you know, consulting and, and able to work dealers more directly, obviously that's, that's the, uh, the hot ticket. It would, it would appear. Well, you know, this is some of the hardest things for dealers to comprehend or, or for technicians to really understand. And that's, you know, people at the OEM level, they're not in the field with you. They don't, you know, I can't tell you how many times I sat in meetings corporately and I would hear, you know, somebody at an executive level go, oh, hey, we need to A, B, and C, or dealers need to do this, or dealers need to do that. And I would sit there with a confused look on my face, and, and I'm a pretty direct communicator for those that know me. And, and someone would say, you know, Kurt, what are you thinking, or what's on your mind? Or, you know, if they didn't ask, I'd have to interject. And I'm like, do you even know what the dealers want? Like, did you ask them? When's the last time you worked at a dealer? Like, if you guys don't have dealer experience, how can you sit in this office and make policy about how a dealer should behave? Like a lot of people just don't understand what the other person is going through. They don't have the ability to put on the other shoe. And so that's why there's this huge disconnect. So many dealers said, man, this course needs to be longer than two days. So that told me that the dealer did have the appetite to be out of the dealership for more than two days if they would see value in it. Right. But then somebody up top had said, dealers don't have the appetite for that. So we're only going to do two days well, where did that information come from? How do you know that? And it's like, well, it's a hunch. And, you know, intuition is a great leadership law. It's something that John Maxwell teaches in the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, but there's more to making decisions than strictly intuition, right? And unfortunately, a lot of our industry is based on intuition and not on fact. 
Yeah, I've been enough places to know right. that. No, you're good. And honestly, you know, I've worked for man- <laughs> I've worked for manufacturers as well. Um, and yes, I was always the guy who was in the field, knee to knee, belly to belly, whatever, whatever body part to body part we want to use, right? But that was it. Was always there'd be a decision made and handed down about something. And I wasn't on the service end; I was on yeah. the sales end. But there'd be something handed down, and we'd immediately, you know, you get on the phone with some of your counterparts, and you'd say, "Well, that's." Not what I'm saying. Are you seeing that? Is that what, you know, is that what we needed? Is that what, you know, are you guys giving feedback that this is what the, the dealers want or need? And of course, everybody shake their heads. And I'm not saying every manufacturer does that, but I, you know, obviously what you're pointing out is what I experienced the same thing for many years. And still to this day, you know, experience that decisions made again on a hunch uh, without that feedback directly from the person who would be able to sit knee to knee. It's a problem. And dealers have told me and they continue to tell me that. So you're, yeah, you're spot on. So. Yeah. It, it makes it really, really difficult, you know, and, and, and now I take a look at this, you know, th- this kind of new life that's in front of me because now I'm independent and not associated with a, an OEM manufacturer. And I'm saying, okay, well, for the last decade, I have given information from an OEM perspective. Like, you know, no matter what, we got to stop buybacks, no matter what we got to this, no matter what we got to that. And at the end of it, I'm looking at it, I'm going, you know, no matter what, we need to train the dealer how to become economically solvent. Like if the, if the dealer is not economically sustainable, there is no business. There's nothing for the OEMs to even sell to. And the idea that they're just going to keep plugging in new dealers and letting dealers sell so they can keep wholesaling units. That's not a sustainable business model. And unfortunately everyone knows it, but no one's really taking steps to really make it fact. You know what I mean? To make it so. Yeah. And I don't know if you've, you know, I'll give myself a little shout out, I guess, on this back to if you, I don't know if you heard the one we had Jared Bird on and um, Jared and I, my takeaway from his entire time we talked, there was a lot in there, but the entire takeaway is that the future to those in power sports who plan to stay in power sports is a maybe minimized version of everything at the dealership to some degree, but an expansion on the service end of it, right? So that, and we talked talked about that in depth and now I can't get that out of my head. Every time I'm in the dealerships I'm in, I think about how, you know, sales focus, sales focus, and I know it's got to be there, but I, I can't get out of my head the fact that these guys, you know, what are they thinking about? What's their shift look like? Are they, are they planning for that shift in, you know, a few years, five years? Um, it's obviously vitally important. And having come from that side of the business into where I'm at now, um, you know, again, I, I think that service, service and service writing, that's the hardest job in the building, in my opinion. And honestly, I personally don't want to go back to that. But there are people who will thrive in that, you know, we, and we've kind of talked about that. Um, tell me about, you know, CSI. Who's using CSI in power sports? I know it's big in automotive um, I don't feel like it's been a conversation by every manufacturer that I've been around in the last years in power sports. Um, what's the deal with CSI and, and where are we headed with that and what should we dealers be doing? I have some reserved fears uh, about the use of CSI. Um, but but let's, let's open up the conversation from the good side and then work our way through. Um, the good side is, yeah, you need to care what your customer thinks. Like that's important, right? And just like what I said about, you know, maybe some people making decisions at the OEM don't really know what the dealer wants or needs. Uh, It's the same for the customer. If we don't, as an industry, 
take note of what the customer wants or needs. And we just keep producing products and services and running business the way we think it should be without consulting the customer. Uh, we're making a huge mistake. And, you know, that's evidence. You know, uh, if we take a look at the industry as a whole and watch the sales, you know, declining year after year after year and everybody clutching on the straws and trying to figure out, well, how come everybody stopped buying motorcycles five years ago? Um, it's, it's a frustration. But the problem that I see with CSI is that people in charge, bean counters, will, will grab a CSI number and take that as a reflection of something else and something that they can um, put retail bonus incentives on, you know, at the wholesale level. They can adjust commissions. They can adjust, um, you know, commissions on warranty dollars that might get paid over the service counter, uh, things like that. And I think that's really, really dangerous. I think using CSI as an overall guide or one of the key performance indicators to show you how your business is doing, like what your trends are, I think that's healthy. But I think when you leverage it as a sole tool to manipulate dollars, I think that that becomes a, a negative. And, and we got to be really careful as an industry how we approach this because on the automotive side, I mean, I'll give you an actual story. Uh, a friend of mine was a service manager at a Nissan dealer. And it's a pretty big company that he was involved with. And he was foolish enough to sign a pay plan that gave him a pretty aggressive commission structure but at the end of the year, if his CSI score had fallen, he would have to give back bonuses, right? So the paycheck before Christmas, they hit him with a negative paycheck of like $4,000. So imagine working, you know, the whole month, getting through the whole commission period, right? Business is going up. You've created revenue for your boss. You've done all these things. But then one or two people aren't happy. They submit a survey with a zero on it to make a statement or just because they're pissed off and that individual loses four grand right before Christmas. Like that is a complete misuse of what that tool is meant to do, right? What, what should happen is someone submits a zero. Well, a dealership can't possibly create a zero survey, right? Something had to go right. So that tool should be, get in touch with that customer. Let's do some damage control. Let's figure out what's going on here. You know, let's use this as a positive reinforcement tool to um, regain relationship with customers that we may be losing relationship with. That's what CSI should be used for. But instead it's used, you know, as a punitive action. They take money back from somebody because it, it, it helps their top dollar, right? But nobody ever reaches out to the customer and fixes the original problem in the first place. So that to me is the danger of CSI. It's meant for good things, but it's rarely implemented and used for good things. Do you think should um, should dealerships, you know, whether service department or otherwise, should they be using um, the manufacturers' CSI platforms or whatever their whatever their version variation, whatever they're calling that is, or should they be doing their own internal um, to kind of keep away? From I personally think every business should be using some type of gauge of their own and. I'm really, really flexible on this, Brian, because it depends. Every, like I said, every power sports business is different, right? Mom and pop, corporately owned, you know, all these different things. It could be as simple as, you know, a Facebook poll, Facebook survey on a Facebook page. It could literally be that simple. Um, what I try to get people not to do is don't burden your customer with some 50-question thing through SurveyMonkey 
and then try to bribe them to get them to finish it. Like, hey, we'll give you a $50 gift card to Chili's if you fill out the survey. Um, that's not that's not active CSI. You want you want something that is short, convenient, and the customer's willing to do it without being enticed. And if you can if you can get that to happen, then you can start to have an actual gauge on whether you're making customers happy or not. And then when you have customers that are super over the top thrilled or people that send in like extra comments, right? You can then do a follow up with those particular people at that range and find out what worked. So you can continue to focus on what's working. And then on the opposite side of the range, when people respond negatively, uh, you want to follow up with those people, you know, graciously and, and, you know, apologize for their time and all that, you know, make sure that you're humble, but find out, Hey, where did we drop the ball? Where could it have been better compared to other dealer experiences? You know, how do you feel that this actually went? And then it gives you, you know, tangible information to go and make improvements. But, you know, a lot of times the manufacturers are just, it's the same game for them. They're sending out scads of surveys. You know, everyone that buys a bike within the first 30 days, 90 days, and 120 days gets a survey to the customer. Only a certain percentage return the surveys. It's either people really happy or really ticked. People in the middle kind of ignore them. And then executives that aren't familiar with the dealer structure are making, you know, corporate landslide decisions based off of those numbers and results, which is kind of a mistake. Yeah. To use it, you know, you definitely, it's definitely a, a supreme negative to use it, to tie the, it around the neck of, you know, someone who is their success, you know, you're going to drag their success down financially or otherwise in the dealership. I think about from, yeah. from the consumer's side, cause we're all consumers right every day. And the sort of things to me that I was thinking, Oh man, that's the sweet spot. At least for me personally would be something like, you know, you get something done. You could ask me two questions. You could ask me, um, you know, what did what did we do to dazzle you today? Like, what dazzled you today with what we did? You know, in what way have we? That'd be question one. And question two would be, where could we do better for you next time, or something like where where yeah. could we have been better? It could be as simple as two different things, right? That way, you see the peak in the valley, so to speak. You you know, you know, okay, this is an area we need to move toward. We're seeing a lot of this, or this is an obvious example of something we can implement quickly. And then obviously this other area, why did that happen? Let's fix that. Let's not let that be the case again. And I, you know, for me, it's, it's a two question deal. And I know that that's maybe too simplistic, but. Yeah. The, the survey thing is, is burdensome to the customer and, you know, everybody wants feedback. Everybody wants data, but you know, you, you buy stuff on Amazon because it's convenient and then they harass you by email for the next three weeks to fill out, you know, uh, give a review of the product. Right. <laughs> um, everyone's doing the same thing. And I, I believe they need to make it much more simple for the customer to communicate with the dealer and with the OEM. And those advanced um, CSI programs are incredibly expensive. So, you know, when I look at a company spending a couple hundred thousand dollars on sending out surveys and aggregating CSI data on a website somewhere, you know, every year, I say to myself, how could a company better spend $200,000. Like that's a lot of money. So if you're going to spend 200 grand on figuring out if Susie's happy with her, you know, PW 50 or whatever, um, how could I better spend that budget to either improve OEM dealer relations or improve dealer customer relations? You know, cause a lot of times people lose sight of the fact of who the customer actually is for the OEM. 
you know, we say it's the, the customer, but it's, it's really the dealer. The dealer's the customer. And, you know, we lose sight of that. We, we try to treat the dealer, well, we, I'm not there anymore. But, you know, sometimes OEMs will try and treat a dealer like, you know, a scolded school child. You know, you need to this, you need to that, you need to the other. And that's not the relationship. You know, at any point in time, the dealer could say, you know, I'm tired of this. You can come get your sign and uh, I'll just sell someone else's product. Yes. And I've been there too. You know, um, it definitely, it can turn into a, a, a leverage fest, you know, and that's, that's too bad because sometimes that's where the one who believes they're in power are, but you like, you're saying exactly right. That's your, that's your number one customer times how many you have across the country. You know, they're obviously your customer yeah. treat them as such and not, not as a, well, we're business partners. Well, kind of yeah. not, you're not, you know, you're not in the same position I'm at it's, in this market and, and also being, I'm told, being told what you need to order and then leveraged into doing so yeah. and negatively with CSI and these other pieces. So I was always interested to go over CSI numbers at the OEM level and, and that's a constant thing, right? So, um, they'll say, Oh, how do we increase customer retention? How do we increase customer satisfaction? How do we, and I'm, I would sit in those meetings and go, why are you asking me? Like it's, we're not, they're not our customers. Like we can monitor the customer satisfaction of dealing with our dealers, but then we need to take an active stance on helping the dealers improve their stance with the customers. And if we're not going to make that investment, then why are we tracking it in the first place? And that's, that's why I say, you know, when you said should dealers do it or should OEMs do it? I, I, I think the dealer needs to take an, an active role in knowing, you know, the, the heartbeat and the footprint that he's making in his community. So I've got the, you know, I'm, this is the one we talked about. I'm sitting here staring at it. It's in front of me, but the service writing in black and white, your book, like I say, what is it? You know, hundred pages in that sort of range. Let me see here. I, yeah. ask, I ask you as I'm looking at the book, yeah, it's in about a, a little less than hundred pages. Uh, I definitely recommend anybody go pick that up. If you're at a dealership, you've got a service department, you work in one, do it. But tell me, uh, tell us more about what you have coming or what else you have for those who want to dig in with an industry guy and some of his offerings to make themselves better? Well, moving forward, you know, I wrote the book and published that one in 2007. And it was, I almost thought it was, I almost thought it was a scam or a joke. Um, someone had reached out to me and said, I'm with Ducati North America. We've read your book and we like it. We'd like to talk to you about developing a program. I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. I'm like, dad, there's no way. Like I'm some nobody in New Mexico. Nobody is going to Click, you reach out to me from... Yeah, no one's going to reach out to me like that. And I should be really clear. When I grew up in Philadelphia, um, Arado Farachi's original shop in Pennsylvania was literally like a mile and a half from my house. And I would bicycle and stare through the dusty, cracked windows, you know, at, at classic Ducatis and just drool. And this is when you didn't see that kind of stuff everywhere, right? Like, that, it was exclusive. It was super exclusive. And uh, so... Ducati in my mind was always this unattainable exclusive thing, right? So out of all the brands to reach out to me, you know, it's Ducati and I'm going, Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. So I thought it was a joke, but I followed up and I returned the email and then the phone call and then the flight to California. And it was really, really an amazing process. It was, um, you know, can you write us a program? Can you write us a course? Yeah. I wrote the course. I said, well, now the course is written, you know, how do you want to pay for it? And they said, well, we don't really want to buy the course. You can own, you can keep ownership of the course, but would you facilitate the course for us? We don't have a teacher. Yeah, I guess I can teach it. Right. So then I, I 
taught the course. And then they said, we don't have anyone that can run the events. Can you take care of all the event planning and hold these courses in Las Vegas? Like, so you want me to go to Vegas like once every two months, hold the event and teach the course. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, okay, I can do that too. So I did that for a few years and then they brought me on internally as their technical trainer. And I worked with them, you know, directly as, as an OEM representative uh, for about three and a half, almost four years. And did that. Then I went to Suzuki another three and a half years there. And now it's weird. I feel like with all this extra OEM experience and having gotten my John Maxwell certification in speaking and leadership and coaching, um, all that combined with the, the power sports stuff, it seems like this is the perfect storm. Um, you know, you've guys, you got guys out there like Robert, I always screw up his last name, Pandya or Pandya, uh, the guy doing the mm-hmm. balance bikes and the IMS shows with the zero bikes and really pushing to get new, new butts in the seats, or he's trying to figure out how do we, how do we rejuvenate the industry, right? So he's moving forward. You got the guys like Garage Composites doing their thing. They're really great at sales and 20 clubs and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm taking a look at where I'm at and I'm going, I really don't need to go to another OEM. I think the best move for me and the, and the best move for the, for the sport, the, the most value I can add to power sports right now is to leverage what I know. And that is to focus on the fixed operations, uh, release the second book, which is already written, which is service writing in the gray. And then, so I have uh, service writing in black and white, service writing in the gray. Uh, service writing in the gray is, is like dealing with the gray issues, right? Uh, communication issues, uh, overcoming objections, all that kind of stuff. It, it's, it's kind of the soft skills of service writing. And so release that book and then move forward with dealer consulting and possibly uh, doing some masterminds online with, with dealers that want to participate. And all of that is kind of held together by the Manana Nomas Academy online at uh, manyananomas.com. So we have a fixed operations course. We can offer that to people. People can do some online training. If they dig the online training and they start to see some advancement but not really sure how to implement things or how to do a needs assessment at their dealership, well, then they can give me a shout. They can contact me through the site. I can go to their location, perform a needs assessment, and then meet with the owner of that dealership and say, okay, based on my needs assessment, these are the top five things we can go after to get you the best return, right? And I'm thinking like customer satisfaction and parts and labor increases. Once we nail that down, then we can start looking at employee turnover and internal training. And, and then once you get the service department dialed, then you start working on plugging the, that service department into the other departments of the dealership, you know, parts and sales. And once you get the leaders of those three departments working together, your dealership can really start to sing. You know, a lot of dealerships are like, they're like a three person band and one of them's out of tune, right? There's always something going on, but if, if you can get everyone to be in tune, all of a sudden the music sounds great. And when the music sounds great, that's when your customers are happy and that's when business really starts to thrive. And that's what I'm shooting for. What would, um, I had a question written down that I was curious to ask you. And I, I always kind of get curious with people that have been around a long time in the business it would be something along the lines of what would the Kurt today, if you were talking to yourself in your twenties, um, what, what would be the most primary thing you'd say? You know, that's funny. <laughs> um, I mentor a group through church, uh, called resonate. It's a young adult group. And 
I say similar things to these guys all the time. So your question uh, hits me right with something that I deal with every week. And that is confidence, right? If I actually ran into the 20 year old Kurt Vaughn, uh, I would pull him aside and I would say, you're not an idiot. You're not stupid. Stay the course, do the work. It's going to pay off. Simple. And that's it. It sounds really simple, right? And, and of course now in hindsight, it is that it all lines up and, and you get it, but you know, I, I can remember being 26 years old and being the best, um, customer mediator at a large dealership. Like whenever somebody hit the roof and, and like if a service writer misspoke or insulted somebody and then there's yelling and screaming and someone's throwing something at 26 years old, I was the guy that could walk in and go, Whoa, hold on. Who are you mad at today? All right, let's, let's figure this out. What's, what's actually happening. Give me the details, right? You know, hear them out, let them talk, work things out and go, so, you know, is the car fixed? Is the car not fixed? Oh, great. The car is fixed, right? With, so then you work on fixing the customer, right? Because then it's like, it's not a problem mechanically. So now it's a problem emotionally. So you get to the root cause of it. You find out the customer's broken. How can I fix the customer? And then I've worked through it. And then a half hour later, we're laughing, we're shaking hands. Everyone's having a cup of coffee. I walk the guy out to his car and he drives away. So out of all the people on staff, I was the guy that could go in and defuse the situation. And then I still let coworkers call me junior, you know, kiddo, stupid, you know, Hey stupid, go get that car out back. Right. I was 26 years old and I didn't have the self-confidence or the self-realization to realize I was probably the smartest guy in the room. And it's never healthy to be the smartest guy in the room. It's never healthy to be that guy. You always want to have someone that you're mentoring under or someone that you can look up to. But at that stage of life, I didn't recognize my own skill set or my own capabilities. And I let other people talk down to me and let me think that I wasn't successful when I was probably the most successful person in the room. And that's, that's like the biggest thing I see with these young folks. We, we treat millennials like garbage and they have some of the best energy and potential available for us. We just refuse process information the way that they do. And it's our own ignorance that's allowing that resource to go to the wayside. I mean, I totally agree. The other, you, you almost segued right into my other question the other kind of thing that I wanted to wrap up with and ask you about, is there someone that you'd want to say, you know, thank you to, or show appreciation to, uh, for having been, you know, a bit of a mentor role for you at some point in your past? There is a guy that I mentioned in the second book and his name is Earl Rotenberry. Um, I don't even know if Earl's still alive. I really don't. But, uh, came from a broken home and I kind of raised myself and my little sister uh, growing up. And I didn't really have like a real father figure to look to. Right. Uh, I knew the guy. It wasn't like I didn't know him, but he was not a great role model. So when I was 19, I got a job working at this bearing and over warehouse. And I was kind of a workaholic. I had more than one job, but I would, and I bicycled everywhere. I loved to bicycle. So I would bicycle to work. And this old guy, Earl was amazing. He was, generally usually happy. And he, and he was the guy that was like, Oh, you know, tell me about the girls you're dating, you know? And then you would talk to him and he goes, well, you know, you can't treat ladies that way. This is the way you need to treat a lady. This is the way you need to treat a girl. Right. And in the winter, um, he had really bad hands. So if it was snowing outside, I'd ride over to his house and I'd clean the car off for him. And then we'd ride into work together. And 
those rides to work is where he imparted a lot of wisdom to me, like, like an old dude would do to a young guy. And he was my mentor. He was realistically. And I, and I, I, I think about this a lot and, I, and I'm actively always looking for a mentor. I'm always looking for someone that I can plug in above me to follow, but they're harder and harder to find. Right. He was the most impactful person I had in my life. And now that I'm in my fifties, I think that's a really sad state of affairs. You know, I wish there would have been more people that I could have plugged in, but, uh, but, but he's the guy. Well, it's interesting. Cause you know, you, <clears throat> you wonder, I mean, I wonder, is it, is it, did you know that he was, I mean, you knew that he was a sort of a father figure at the time. Did you imagine him to be a mentor at that time? Or do you have to look back to realize that? Nope. Took it totally for granted. This totally for granted. This goes along with what I know we tend to do. And and I think, you know, maybe some of what I've heard back from feedback on just even doing these conversations with guys and then share them out on the podcast is the ability to, you know, to kind of regroup, you know, you know, go through and and line item and list out where you're at with certain things and, and maybe things like that, where did, you know, appreciating the things you have, whether it's a mentor, somebody that's there to help you, somebody that's been there for you. Uh, even though it's many years in the, in the, in the back, right. At this point, um, when, yeah. do you want to direct, uh, people, uh, where they could go to find uh, more about you? Well, uh, <laughs> my, my daughter was trying to do a birthday present for my wife and she tried to Google my wife last year. And that's when my kids realized that dad is internet famous. And so that, that was the joke in the house for like six months. So if you type in my name, Kurt Von Onen, into Google, you'll see like something like 38 pages of stuff come up. Um, but I would really like people to go to mananonomats.com. Um, that is kind of what I've branded myself under. And, you know, I, I'm not Hispanic. <laughs> people always ask, why do you have a Spanish name? Uh, I used to live in New Mexico and, and ran a business, uh, a marketing business in New Mexico. And one day I threw a fit because... I kept having clients come in that weren't ready. Like you would give them homework to do and then they would come back you'd have a meeting and you're like, this is everything I did for you. It's ready to go. I just need your stuff. And they'd never be prepared. And it was, I was working with the economic development department out there. And I said to one of them in a board meeting once, I said, I can't keep working with people that aren't vested in their own success. I have to work with passionate people. I'm a creative person and I have to have people that are plugged in and committed to their own success. If they're not committed to their own success, there's nothing you can do to make things succeed. Manana Namas, man, they got to get it done today, not tomorrow. And he goes, that would be a good name for a business. And I changed my business name the next day, and it's been Manana Namas ever it's, since. It's a good one. It, yeah, definitely. And you've got like a little subtext to it, getting it done yesterday, right? Yeah, yeah, getting it done yesterday. Uh, while Manana Namas was actively in business in New Mexico, we built over 350 websites, launched a lot of e-commerce sites, and ran social media for over 85 companies. Mm. And my catchphrase, my, my, my thing, the, the way that I kept getting more and more clients was at no point in time was I ever over budget or late. Everything was always on time and under budget. And that's, to me, in today's business world, that's almost unheard of. Yeah. People are always calling up with an insurance supplement or, some, you know, hey, we found an extra thing. And I would always tell companies, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is the, the results you can expect. And then, you know, this is when we'll execute. Right. And the idea that no matter what came my way after that, I made it fall within that budget and that timeline. I mean, 
there were times I took a loss on some things, but I felt with business ethics at play, that's what I had to do to make it right. And it worked. The business started to grow. And the only reason I closed down at that time was because, you know, the opportunity of working with Ducati full time, uh, that was like a lifetime dream to work with such an awesome exclusive brand. I, I couldn't, I couldn't turn that down. So I went to Southern California, did the OEM game. Well, Kurt, I appreciate you jumping on with us. I'm going to share, you know, uh, the link to Manana Nomas and uh, as well as your, as well as your current book, obviously I assume they can go to that link and get the uh, pre-order on the new one coming, the, the uh, service writing in yeah, gray. That's, uh, service, uh, service writer book.com. I reserved that years ago. And for some reason that's pretty popular. Service writer book.com. Okay. Perfect. Well, folks go there, check it out. Um, reach out to Kurt directly. I'm going to, I'm going to put his, like his LinkedIn, uh, stuff in the, in the, like the notes in here. So you can reach out to him if you can't find him somehow, as he said, he's certainly internet famous. He's got a lot of places you can find him. If you somehow couldn't figure it out, you know how to get a hold of me. I'll put you directly in touch with him. Kurt, thanks for jumping on. That was awesome, Brian. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.